I'd like to go ahead and begin by asking you all to consider or imagine how different your life would be right now if you were born or if you grew up somewhere completely different. Uh, for example, uh, imagine if you had spent most of your life uh, maybe in some remote jungle in the Amazon or of some obscure rural village in Mongolia. Or in my case, if I was born in North Korea instead of South Korea, my life would have been drastically different. So consider how much where you are would have affected who you are. You know, shaping, shaping everything from how you speak to how you act to what food you like, and last but not least, how you dress. Now remember how last week we, we started with the question, where are you? Which again was the very first question that God asked of man in the Bible. And in light of what we learned last Sunday about where we are now in Christ, from Colossians 3, I'd like to ask you all, feel free to shout out the answer. Where are we now, Christians? Raised in Christ, raised with Christ. These are all correct answers, which means this, and I want to start with this reminder. Even though we live a life that's very much in this world, we no longer live life of this world. Instead, now we have this life from above. Right? With Christ, who is our very source of life. And this is also why we are compelled to seek the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And now he's our life's true treasure and ultimate reward. We've come to the point now where no one and nothing else will satisfy us. Because that's where our life truly is. Our lives are hidden and secure only in Christ. So here's another way to understand uh, what Paul is going to exhort us to today in today's passage, continuing in chapter 3. Paul's going to be telling us that where we are also determines who we are. Again, where we are also determines who we are. Now here's something that's uh, amazing about being raised with Christ, you know, being where he is. You'll very much be you, yes, but it will be as if you are born again. You'll be made new, and this will profoundly shape uh, how you speak, how you act, and even how you dress. So from the outset, here's the big idea that I hope everyone will take away from today's passage. It's this simple, singular call. Be who you truly are in Christ. Because this will change everything about you, how you walk in the world and how you act in the world. Look with me at the last verse of our passage, chapter 3, verse 17, which exhorts us to this very reality. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this makes us a little nervous, right? Because Paul is saying we should be doers of the word rather than just hearers, since that verb do uh, shows up twice for emphasis here. 
But in order for us to be faithful doers, Paul also calls us to carry out our doing in who? By whose name? Well, what does he mean by the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Well, I think what that means is we act in accord with Christ's person and his character. Not only that, but everything we do is also through him. That is, he's also the source and power for all of our doing. And what this ultimately leads to is thanksgiving to God the Father. Because at the end of the day, the Lord alone is going to get the glory for our lives. Now, this is also why Paul begins his section the way that he does in verse 12. He does so by reminding believers of ultimately who we are, of what our true identity is simply on account of having repented and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only after Paul establishes, firmly establishes our identity in Christ, only then does he move on to exhort us how to walk, how to look like him, how to put on Christ, or rather to be clothed with Christ. Look with me at verse 12 again, just verse 12. Put on then, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice those three titles or descriptions, chosen, holy, and beloved. This brief uh, three-word summary is like a condensed uh, version of everything that Paul has told the Colossians so far about what their true identity is in Christ. And this is one way that Paul is also countering the false identities that the false teachers are trying to push on the Colossians. And that's what false teaching has always done. From the garden to today, false teaching always ensnares people in false identities. Untrue things or ideas about what it means to be human made in the image of God. Now in the Colossians case, uh, some of these false teachers tried to uh, cast doubt on the truth that they had received, the gospel that they had received, they tried to cast out on the notion or idea that they were chosen by God. And they were trying to convince these mostly Gentile, formerly pagan, now Christian people, they were trying to convince them of, of things like, uh, you can't be God's chosen, simply on account of faith and repentance in the gospel. No, you gotta move to the next level. Now you gotta get circumcised, because that's a true mark of being God's chosen people. Or they were teaching things such as, if you really want to be holy, then you must gain mastery over your body through severe asceticism, severe punishment and discipline. That's the way to pure devotion to God. And here's the long list of unclean places, people, and food to avoid. Never mind that uh, this list often contradicted the very teachings of Jesus himself. And finally, as you can imagine, all this false teaching kind of as it caked on the Colossians, it was putting into question for them whether God actually loved them. Were they truly accepted by God because they weren't doing all these things that the false teachers were pushing on them? Now to all this, Paul reminds us, as well as the Colossians, who who we truly are in Christ, and how 
they already have everything they need in him. They already have his gospel to live the life that they need to live in him, to be who they truly are. Now, this is a, a, a key verse of the whole letter of, of Colossians. If you want to turn back to chapter 2, verse 6, this is what Paul is ultimately exhorting them and us to, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here's what it means for those who continue to walk in Christ, that they can rest assured that who they are is chosen, holy, and beloved. All right? You can rest assured that you're chosen because ultimately, he chose us. We didn't choose him. Or put another way, God's life came to us through his will and his initiative, not ours. You can choose that as much as you can choose where and when you were born. Right? This is God's choice. And this also means that anything good that we have, it's all a gift. We've received it from his good hand. Everything that we are in Christ, all of it is gift. And just in case you're doubting that, we only have to remember when it was that the Lord chose to reconcile us to himself. Uh, look back with me at chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So did God choose us when we were earnestly seeking him in righteousness and purity? No, quite the opposite. It was God in his gracious, sovereign will and choice that he was earnestly pursuing us even while we were alienated and hostile to him, walking and actually living in our evil deeds. And this actually brings us to the next description of who we are now that we have been chosen, which is we are holy, which means we are set apart or devoted to the Lord. Thus, here's what God has chosen for us, to be completely his, to belong completely to him, to be set apart for his namesake and devoted to bearing his likeness in the world and reflecting his very own glory through his life at work within us. Paul describes what God the Father has set us apart for and how, how he's actually made us holy for his son in the following way. Uh, look back at chapter 1, verse 13 with me. Chapter 1, verse 13, this is what God the Father has done. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And did you notice there how Jesus is first and foremost referred to as beloved? That's his title. So how unbelievably amazing it is that this very same title 
would be the word to describe us and our relationship to God now? Because here's what we have in Christ. We're not only chosen, we're not only holy, we can now know and rest in the reality that we are his beloved. Now, this is something that I also want us to get clear about, uh, because oftentimes I think we default to this notion, and I think it's a very earthly notion, that God sent Jesus to die for our sins so that he could finally love us. No, that's not the gospel. That is not the logic of the gospel. Rather, the gospel reveals this to us. It's because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I'm sure you guys recognize that. That's John 3.16. Which means this, before we are to do or try to be anything for Christ, here's what's absolutely vital to understand and apply to your own heart. He loved us first, long before we ever loved him, and that it's from his love that we seek him, not for, not for his love. So remember, you were chosen, holy, and beloved. Once we're grounded in this reality, then we're free to move on to honor Christ by putting on these following qualities that reflect him, which is what Paul exhorts us next Uh, exhorts us to next in verse 12. Let's look again at this list. Verse 12, chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's important to know that every one of these qualities that we're called to put on here are first attributed to God or Christ in the Bible. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Because as Paul already mentioned in chapter 3, verse 10, what's happening through salvation is that we are being renewed in the knowledge, in, in knowledge after the image of its creator or creator which means that this new self we're putting on is none other than Christ himself. We are putting on, we are putting on Christ as our very covering. So, just to drive this home, what this means is that we're actually being made to look more and more like Jesus, by Jesus. And I find it so interesting that the very first thing that Paul says we are to put on here when we're to to put on Christ, is compassionate hearts. And this word compassion, you know, we can try to hash it out in so many ways, but it primarily refers to this genuine concern that we should have about someone else's poor, bad, pitiable circumstances, right? Which is why we're told multiple times in the Gospels about how Jesus, Jesus had compassion for us. For example, in in Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 36, we're told this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. You see, compassion was often Christ's first disposition toward us. Because the reality is, all of us in, are in direly bad circumstances apart from him. We're harassed, we're helpless, we're desperately lost in our sin, and our need for him goes so much deeper than we will ever understand in this life. So if, if Christ's first disposition toward us is compassion, a heart of compassion, what should our disposition be toward one another? especially if we're being renewed in his image. I think it means we put on compassionate hearts, first toward, toward the, the household of God and, and then also to those outside, because who shows us compassion now and who showed us compassion then, even when we were alienated and hostile toward him? Now, interestingly, every time Jesus' compassion was mentioned in the Gospels, it always led him to doing something about it, right? Or carrying out some compassionate action. That is, out of his, his compassion, Jesus healed, he fed, he taught. Which means this. Jesus is actively drawing us near to himself through his heart of compassion. And once again, the... the I think the airtight logic of Jesus walked like this, so we should walk like this too, uh, applies to the rest of these virtues that we're to put on in Christ. For instance, who's shown more kindness to you? Embracing even the shame of death on a cross so that you might finally become awake and alive in his love for you. Or how about patience? Because who shows us unparalleled patience all the day long? Who is the most long-suffering Savior King who continues to stun us when we're aware enough to reflect on it? Stun us with how patiently he bears with us. Very much in our weakness, very much in our faltering. And who is it that while he holds the, the very universe uh, uh, together in the palm of his hand and, and as the, the keeper of all power, rule, and authority, but at the same time carries a heart that is gentle and lowly and humble, who is the one that is gentle and meek toward us? Who are bruised reeds that he is very careful with to not break. So now, as you might have noticed, all these qualities also have one ultimate concern. It's not ourselves. Rather, it's first the Lord, and then it's one another. And in that, guess what? We get taken care of as well. And this is the case because all these virtues are, are important kind of um, underservants to our ultimate calling and attribute in Christ which is none other than love. Look again with me at verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just to be clear, uh, Paul's not talking about wishy-washy, rom-com, fleeting, man-made love. 
uh, but divine, enduringly eternal, agape love. You know, the kind of love that's by, by its very definition always seeks out, even at great cost to itself, what's best for the other. You see all these other virtues from verse 12? They only come together in perfect harmony when, lo- when the love of God in Christ is the driving aim of them all. But keeping with the, the dress metaphor, it's, it's like the overcoat, you know, that brings the whole ensemble together in perfect harmony and beautiful symmetry. Once you got that on, you can move out into the world. Now that sounds really nice, maybe even very sentimental, but you know what's absolutely necessary in this fallen world? If we're gonna truly express and share such divine love with one another, the answer according to verse 13 is we're gonna need forgiveness. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. the whole Bible, which is, which is also exemplified by this verse, universally acknowledges the fact that we still live this life as saints in progress, people very much on the way. So while we are very much children of God, uh, just like children, we still very much have some growing up to do, some maturing to do in Christ. In fact, earlier Paul spoke about how his whole ministry is actually completely driven by this goal to help believers grow into maturity. Let's read again from chapter 1, verse 28. Flip there with me. Chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, returning to chapter 3, if indeed we're going to help each other grow toward true maturity, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we can do to help one another along, is to be gracious toward one another. This is very true, even on the, the, the most earthly level. There's no close friendship or marriage or any kind of close relationship that doesn't require this to some extent. Because once again, sin is real. The fall has touched everything. So, there's also the option to be just like our old selves still. To be self-righteously angry. Mercilessly wrathful. Abusively slanderous. I'm sure I've been guilty of all those things maybe just this week. But there's also, now that we are in Christ, we can be like him. We can be like the new man who is compassionate, kind, gentle, humble, patient, which are all necessary aspects of forgiveness and bearing with one another. Because again, such bearing with one another is ultimately bearing the image of the one who has done the same for us. But to an infinitely greater degree, Which is why Paul goes on to command us in verse 13, 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So here Paul reminds us not only that we're chosen, that we're holy, and that we're beloved. In Christ, we're also forgiven. We're forgiven. We move into forgiveness as those forgiven. And if we're going to be, true, be who we truly are, clothed with Christ, what's necessary is that the forgiven also forgive. I love how Paul doesn't pretend like once we, we become Christians, we all of a sudden stop sinning against one another, um, against God, and that other Christians stop sinning against us. I don't think anyone can live in that pipe dream for longer than maybe a day at the, at the longest. No, rather, he very much acknowledges this reality that due to our present immaturity and our ongoing need for growth in Christ, legitimate complaints of varying degrees are going to come up between us. So when such complaints do arise, and they will, what resources do we have to tackle this problem? First, Paul tells us, and what he exhorts us to, is that we must recognize our forgiveness from above. To always remember how the Lord has forgiven you. Only when we first receive this forgiveness from the Lord do we have the resources, spiritual and otherwise, to extend it to others. Because in the end, we can only forgive to the extent that we understand that we're forgiven. But once we do receive God's forgiveness in Christ, we become free to share that same grace with those around us. So that when someone wrongs us, we're actually moved by God's spirit to forgive because we too have been forgiven. Now this doesn't mean that the relationship doesn't change or that we don't pursue justice or seek to right certain wrongs. It is not forgive and forget and brush it under the carpet and let's pretend like nothing happened. Uh, I recommend you read Philemon and maybe go back and listen to that series for some more nuance on that. No. I think the cross itself is the greatest testament to the fact that God wants justice, but he also wants mercy. And that's where we understand what God's will is for us in Christ. So, I think this means that uh, when we're sinned against, we must begin. We must actually begin by forgiving one another from our heart as we've been forgiven by God from his heart. Because if we don't do this, it's not godly justice that we're going to pursue. Rather, it will be unholy vengeance. I'm going to make you pay. And this all just drags us back into our old self. Now, much of what I just said about forgiveness was borrowed from an incredibly helpful book expounding the Bible's teaching on forgiveness, uh, simply titled Forgive by Tim Keller, who was called home to Jesus this week. Bittersweet for, for many of us, but not at all for Tim. But if you're at all anything like me and you struggle with giving forgiveness or even receiving forgiveness, I'd recommend you give that book a read may give you a new appreciation for how wise and powerful and wonderful God's grace is to us through Jesus. 
and its power to actually change everything, absolutely everything. And yet, um, another compelling reason we forgive is that it produces this uniquely glorious fruit that everyone in this room, everyone in the world desperately longs for, true peace. Look with me at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the first surprising thing that we learn here about the peace of Christ is that it's a peace that God, God gives us and God calls us to together, corporately. That is, we experience it in the context of his one body. Now, this totally cuts against the grain of, I think, our, our culture's common definition of grace, which is, or, or peace, which is, uh, it often equates peace with just our individual experience of inner serenity. Um, and that's, that even often fuels the lie that peace is, is not, not in pursuing difficult reconciliation, but rather by pursuing profound selfishness self-absorption, self-satisfaction, which is quite unlike the peace of Christ, which actually rules over our lives as we experience it together in the bonds of gracious, holy love, right? In a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, there's one specific means that the Lord has given to us to stay on track with all of this so that we don't forget who we truly are, so that we have the power to love one another until the very end. This powerful means is none other than this book that you've had open before you, none other than God's very word, which, by the way, the word of the Lord was what actually brought all creation into existence. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. But look at verse 16 first. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, once again, if we're going to be who we are in Christ and continue to grow into maturity together as his disciples, what is the essential activity of the life of every believer? We must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. The word of Christ being the gospel, which is the central message embedded in all of the scriptures and functions as the heart of both the Old and the New Testaments, it's that word that must dwell in us richly or abundantly or overwhelmingly. And again, this is not some individualistic exhortation. It's not just about going away and becoming a Bible scholar or our private study of the word, but rather a word of Christ-centered and driven life of fellowship with one another. The word leads to communion. The word of Christ must dwell in us richly so that we can be generous, lavish in building one another up through it, lest we become puffed up by knowledge or we gas up our egos by how much biblical knowledge we have. Or 
It's a dangerous road to go down to try to use God's word as a means to your selfish ends. Now, as I already mentioned, let's not forget how powerful this word is and why it must dwell in us richly. Because the true nature and power of God's word has been revealed from the very beginning of time. After all, God created everything through his word because when God speaks, it is very much as if he acts. This is why Jesus himself could stop a storm by just saying a word. Or even raise the dead by speaking a command. You see, this this word of the gospel, which Paul in Romans refers to as the very power of salvation, it's actually the very means Christ has instituted to bring all creation, including us, back to himself. And when this word dwells richly within us, we become the very instruments or heralds by which God speaks his new creation into being. When we go out and we proclaim the gospel, the dead are being raised. What an incomparable privilege for every believer. Yes, every believer. Yes, elders and teachers, people in certain offices in the church, they have a certain vital role to play, I would say, in the preservation and passing on of this word but it's ultimately to be passed on to every disciple of Jesus so that we can all minister the word of Christ to one another and to the world. Which brings me to this pointed question. Christian, how rich or how impoverished is your word life? How often is God's word on your mind heart, and tongue. Look at the last few weeks of your life. How much of a priority was it for you to put yourself in a position to hear God's word, to hear the gospel, and to have it applied deeply and personally into your heart, and then for you to do the same to others? In the context of of meeting regularly with other believers? I want us to consider this question in light of what Jesus uh, had to say in in the parable of the soils, which is really his parable about his word. Um, There Jesus warned us about all the ways that we can become word impoverished in our lives. Because sometimes the devil just comes and snatches it up before it has a chance to take root. And other times we fall away from the word on account of pain, persecution, trial, Other times, especially in times of affluence and distraction, Jesus also says that the idolatry of good things, such as pleasure, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of leisure, Jesus simply refers to them all as the desire for other things. All of them are like weeds that choke out the word in us. And living in one of the most uh, affluent and frenetically distracted societies and ages in the history of all mankind, I think we must pray and seek the Lord so that his word may dwell richly within us. We all need to take serious stock of these questions for ourselves, your pastors and elders very much included. 
We all need to evaluate the priorities of our day-to-day lives. And I'm not saying this to guilt or shame you, but rather to look up and take a, take a look at what you may be missing. Because Jesus told another parable about finding a great treasure in a field. Right? And that man, basically, once he discovered that treasure, he sold everything else that he owned so that he could own that treasure. He was dedicated to that. And this word of Christ, I think, is very much in keeping with that. So, I want to ask, where have you been looking for wisdom? In whose words have you been looking for life? Because all wisdom, true wisdom, is only ultimately found in one place, and that is in the word of Christ. Now, here's another beautiful kind of side effect or consequence of the word of Christ dwelling richly within us. It overflows into joyful and worshipful expression and and abundant holy creativity where our hearts can't stop singing to God. The word of Christ just compels us to sing, and, and it also helps us to serve one another in, in our singing, right? We, we actually minister truth and grace to one another as we share in these uh, heavenly melodies together. Now, at the same time, I don't want you to get the idea that these are all just happy songs that we're going to be singing all the time. Uh, consider the Psalms, that divinely inspired songbook that covers the entire range of human experience and emotion. There's nothing quite like it. But through the word of Christ, the Psalms, along with hymns and other spiritual songs, they're like a precious gift from God to us that we share with one another to help one another along the way. Now, last but not least, when we hear and exhort the word of Christ together, and and we're thus being who we are in Christ, you know what else we won't be able to stop doing? Even in our darkest days? Giving thanks to him. Did you notice how often thanksgiving or gratitude is is mentioned in our passage? Uh, Look at how all these verses close in chapter 3. Verse 15 closes by saying, and be thankful. Verse 16 with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why such an emphasis on thankfulness? To the point where Paul emphatically closes all his exhortations with this call to gratitude. Because, my friends, this is how Jesus has decided to complete our joy how to bring it to fullest expression. Because when you hear the good news that God the Father has chosen you, even before the foundation of the world, don't you want to express and thus fulfill your joy by crying out, thank you, God, my Father. And when you reflect on how Christ took us from death to life by taking our death, and giving us his life in its place, and then devoting us wholly as a new creation to himself, 
Doesn't your heart just leap? Wanting to cry out. Thank you, Lord Jesus, with every fiber of my being. And finally, when you realize that Jesus has forgiven you and that you are now reconciled as a full child of God to live forever with him as his beloved, how can we not do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.